Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we're going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. I was sitting at my piano with an empty whiskey glass for the fourth time that week. For the fourth time that week, I had come up blank. I didn't drink the whiskey to help me creatively so much as to push away my thoughts of becoming a washed-up has-been. At only 33, I felt too young to have a dead dream, but as I sat at that piano, afraid to even touch the keys, it seemed something inside me had died. The calls for interviews had stopped about three months ago. Following the release of my second solo album, my phone had been ringing every few hours. Maybe I had basked in the limelight too long. Maybe I'd let the attention get to my head. Now the only calls I got were from my manager. He checked in at least once a week to see how the next album was coming along. The lies I told him were more creative than anything I was doing on the piano. I played one of the only melodies I'd been able to compose thus far. It sounded okay, but a little weak. It certainly didn't hold up to anything from my first two albums. I couldn't decide where the song should go next either. I got up to pour some more whiskey, wondering if the golden elixir had any ideas for me. Before I sat back down, I heard my mail slot creak open and the soft patter of mail hitting the floor. I set my glass on the piano and went to pick up the mail. I sorted the bills from the junk while I walked back to the piano. An odd letter at the bottom of the stack caught my attention before I sat down. It had my address handwritten, and a stamp, but no return address. I opened the letter carefully, watching for any white powder, etc., and found a single sheet of notebook paper inside. Sitting at the piano, I unfolded the paper and read a brief note handwritten in all capital letters. It said, Faster, go to a minor. I stared at the cryptic note for a few minutes, trying to decode the nonsensical message. Finally, I decided the letter had probably come from some fan who needed help more than they needed attention. My manager had warned me of the unhinged types who might become obsessed with me after feeling a connection to my music. I let the letter drift to the floor and went back to work on my song. I played that subpar melody again and again, always trying to manifest the next note or maybe a strong chord in the bass that would transform the melody from mediocre to sublime. My eyes drifted to the floor as my fingers executed the familiar sequence on the keys. The letter lay open between my feet. 
faster. Why not, I thought aloud. I played the melody a little faster, then faster still. I played it as fast as my hands could manage, then brought it back down a little. Some extra speed resuscitated the tired melody and made it sound fresh and exciting. My heart beat a little faster, and I couldn't help but smile. Thanks, I said, looking down at the letter between my feet. The next line caught my eye. Go to a minor? No, go to A minor. All the capital letters had masked the true message. I played the melody again at near top speed, and as my right hand fingered the last note, my left dropped onto a low A minor chord. It sounded beautiful, hauntingly so. The dark chord contrasted with the upbeat melody and created the depth I'd been yearning for as I struggled to write. Wherever the letter had come from, it was a godsend. I played a few notes over the A minor chord and experimented with some other chords to complete the song. I quickly recorded it so I wouldn't forget a single note, then went out for dinner to celebrate. I hadn't considered the dark side of finishing the song, though. The next day, when I sat down at the piano, I started with nothing. I'd used up the one decent melody I had. I struggled against the fear of coming up short and played a few notes here and there, but nothing set in. Nothing I played was even worth remembering. The next day, I decided not to play the piano. I needed to clean the house, and I thought if I did something so benign and uncreative, I might free up my brain for ideas. I closed the door to the piano room and got to work on other tasks. The mail came at its usual time and I picked it up off the floor. I stopped in my tracks and dropped the feather duster I'd been holding when I saw another letter addressed like the first one. I tore the envelope open, eager to see what the letter would say. The note looked like a sequence of random letters. C-G-A-M-E-M-G-F But I had learned my lesson with the first letter. I ran to the piano room and threw open the door. As I sat down at the keys, I mentally separated the letters and read them as intended. C, G, A minor, E minor, G, F. It was a chord progression. Whoever had sent me the first helpful note now gifted me with the beginning of a song. I played a few variations of the chord progression at different tempos. Finally, I settled on a version that suited my style and sounded like something I might have written a year or two earlier. An hour later, I had turned the simple progression into another full song. After I recorded it, I walked away from the piano to celebrate. Then it hit me. How did this person know I had writer's block? Was it simply a coincidence that they had started sending me song ideas when they did? No, that wasn't possible, I thought. The first letter had been too specific. The faster tempo and transition to A minor had fit too perfectly with the melody I had been working with. I stepped onto my porch and looked around. I peered at each of my neighbor's homes, trying to determine how many of them were close enough to hear my piano when I played. I supposed a couple of them might be within earshot, but only if they were home. I did most of my playing during the day when other people were at work. I walked a slow lap around my house. There were some bushes and trees a person could hide behind, but I couldn't find a single footprint or divot to indicate someone had been there. Most people with any level of notoriety would have probably reported the letters. 
I did recognize the potential danger of allowing them to continue. The writer had my address and seemed to be getting close enough to listen in on my sessions. But the truth is, I felt so relieved to have a couple of songs under my belt that I could ignore the possible threat to my safety. I keep my doors locked. I have a good security system. What was there to worry about? The third letter was a little different from the first two. I had been excited to receive another great idea, but this letter didn't contain any musical advice. Instead, the writer had given me instructions for what to do if I wanted to receive more ideas. It read, Place lock of hair in envelope. Leave in bush below bedroom window. More songs after. If you see me, no songs. I set the letter down and absentmindedly ran my fingers through my hair. Maybe the letter writer really was just a freaky fan who happened to have some interesting ideas. I struggled with the instructions, hosting a debate between two sides of my mind. One side thought following the instructions would be a bad idea. Giving in to such an odd and personal request felt humiliating and submissive. But the voice on the other side reminded me of how I'd been struggling to write new songs before the letters started. A lock of hair was a small price to pay if it would keep the letters coming. I ignored the humiliation and snipped a couple inches of hair off my head a minute later. I put it inside an envelope and placed it in the bush directly below my bedroom window on the house's rear side. I didn't know when the letter writer would come, so I nervously avoided any of the rear windows for the rest of the day. I didn't want to accidentally catch a glimpse of my ghostwriter and lose out on future song ideas. When I went to bed that night, I assumed the envelope was still in the bush, but didn't want to look, lest I accidentally see something I shouldn't. I struggled with sleeplessness for a while, but eventually drifted off. No letter came the next day, which I found frustrating. I finally peeked out of my bedroom window and saw the envelope had disappeared. This frustrated me further. I had complied with the writer, the creep's demands. So where was my next song? Another day went by without another letter, during which I became increasingly belligerent. I felt like a fool, duped, like an idiot. I had been tricked, or so I thought. The next letter arrived on the third day. It contained no apologies for the lapse in communication, didn't mention the hair or thank me for my compliance, but did offer the chords for another song. These chords were richer than the last progression. They had a deeper quality, more moody. I loved them. I forgot all about the days that had passed without letters as I played what became the third song for my next album. The following day, another letter arrived with more instructions. Repeat last instruction with fingernail. I didn't struggle with the choice to participate this time. I hadn't experienced any consequences from delivering the hair and had received my favorite song so far in return. I went straight to the bathroom, trimmed my thumbnail, and put the clipping in an envelope in the bush. I slept like a baby that night. One day passed without a letter, which I realized made sense logistically. The creep had to wait until they received my nail clipping to mail the next letter, which accounted for the delay. A letter came the next day, and I opened it eagerly, excited to play the next song. But this letter didn't contain a song, 
It contained a hostile rebuke. I had misunderstood the last instructions. The creep made them clearer in this letter, to my horror. Wrong. Read again. Fingernail. Not clipping. One more failure and no more letters. I stared down at my fingers, bewildered. Why would this person want to inflict pain on someone they had been helping? I kept staring, trying to imagine how it would feel to pull a fingernail free. Shuddering, I realized I was actually considering obeying the letter. I couldn't. I couldn't do that to myself. I wasn't even sure I'd be able to play the piano after ripping out a fingernail. How long would it take to heal? I tore the letter in half, crumpled it and the envelope into a tight ball, and threw them away. Farewell, creep. It was fun while it lasted. I sat down at the piano and tried to write something new. I played around with some of the jazzy chords from the last helpful letter the creep had sent. I tried rearranging them to see if they could inspire something original from me, but they just didn't work out of order. They had been meticulously arranged into that third song. I loved that song so much. My manager called that afternoon with some bad news. We've got to deliver the demos in two months, he said. How many? I asked. All of them. The whole album and any extras you've got, too. The label wants to hear everything and maybe send you a couple hits to cover as well. They really want to reignite the momentum from the last release. I felt numb. All the lies I'd told my manager about my writing success were coming back to bite me. What if... What if the demos aren't ready in two months? I asked. What do you mean? You've been working on these songs forever. You really need more than eight weeks to record some quick demos? Don't worry about that, just answer my question, I demanded more harshly than he deserved. Well, you'll be in breach of contract, he replied. The label will probably release you. Maybe they'll sue. You never know with these guys. It's all about the bottom line for them, you know? I do, I replied. I hung up the phone and pondered my options. The simplest choice would be to sit down and force eight or nine more songs out to send to the label, but I'd already tried hard enough to know how that would go. I kept glancing down at my hand. It was hard to imagine tearing out my own fingernail, but it would grow back. Would my career? My reputation? The momentary, self-inflicted injury might be far less painful in the long run. I decided to try. I told myself if the pain was too much, or if I just couldn't bring myself to rip out a fingernail, I would try writing on my own again. But I had to at least try. I downed four Tylenol with a tall glass of whiskey. Then I retrieved my pliers from my toolbox beneath the kitchen sink. At first, I stood over the sink to perform my macabre task, but quickly realized I needed to be sitting down. I thought I might pass out. Maybe that would be best. I grabbed a clean dish rag and sat on the piano bench. After careful consideration, I settled on my left thumb. I thought it would affect my day-to-day -day activities, especially my playing, the least. It didn't quite have enough excess on the end to grip with the pliers, so I had to slowly work the tip between my skin and fingernail. This gave me the first taste of the pain that was to come. It felt awful, but not unbearable. 
The whiskey had settled nicely in the back of my brain, making the pain a little easier to ignore. I wasn't exactly sure how much force I would have to exert on my thumb to remove my fingernail, so I decided to give it everything I had. I allowed myself a long, guttural scream as I yanked on the pliers and felt a searing pain just above my knuckle. Slick blood spouted from the wound, causing the pliers to slip off. I had to look down at the bloody mess to reposition them and pull the nail the rest of the way off. My mind tried to take off. Just before I lost consciousness, I managed to wrap the dish rag around my thumb. I don't remember my head hitting the keyboard, but I remember the dissonant, echoing sound of the piano ringing out from the impact. I woke up a few minutes later, my head and thumb both throbbing, my mouth chalky and numb. I had never passed out before, and it's not an experience I would recommend. I almost lost consciousness again when I saw the bloody fingernail laying on the floor next to the pliers, but I got a hold of myself and picked it up. I put it in an envelope before getting myself cleaned up. Once I felt confident I could walk, I put the envelope in the bush. I went to bed early that evening, and when I woke up, the envelope was gone. Two days later, another song came in the mail. The notes sounded tortured. The chords had no levity at all, no relief. When played slowly, the song sounded like a dirge, but it had an underlying beauty to it as well, a miserable, haunting beauty, like a Shakespearean tragedy. I had been so excited to try the song, I hadn't noticed an extra line scrawled on the back of the latest letter. I noticed it as I was getting up from the piano. It read, For next, a tooth. I dropped the letter and called my manager. He picked up and before he could even say hello, I asked, What about a covers album? Covers? He asked. Yeah, I'll play some big top 40 hits and we can worry about new originals next year. Well, I'll have to run it by the label, but that's not a half bad idea, he replied. Great, thanks, I said and quickly hung up. I crumpled the letter and threw it away. I was done with the creep and their sick games. For now. You might think I should have moved away, gotten a new address. I considered it. I really did. Maybe I even wanted to. It would have been the most obvious, logical choice. But the truth is, this covers album is selling as well as bread, and I know the label will be after me for the next set of originals soon. Any day now. And I haven't tried to write a damn thing yet. I still have those four songs from The Creep just in case. And I haven't moved for the same reason. Just in case. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.